great to have Matt and Misty back. For those of you who don't know who Matt and Misty are, maybe you're newer to our church or today's your first time. Uh, Matt was our first worship leader, and they were a key part of getting our church started. Then God called them out to Panama, and now they're building a special needs orphanage in Panama. And we're going to be doing a couple trips in the fall to go out and see them and uh, minister alongside them and hopefully bless them. And if you're interested in possibly being a part of one of those, uh, bump into them in the lobby and, and just let them know that. And so I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we're jumping to the message this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Um, that we get to open up your word today. I pray for each one of us uh, that you'd have a word for us. I pray that you'd speak supernaturally somehow through my lips. Um, I think of Isaiah, that I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, that we are sinful people. Uh, But cleanse us and use us, and God, work in spite of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm glad that you're here today. If you are a guest, I want to point you to your worship program. Hopefully you received on your way in. There's a card inside there that we call a connection card. If you just take a moment and fill that out and let us know that you are here. We don't want you to give any money today, but if you'd fill that card out and drop it in the offering boxes or take it out to the first-time guest kiosk, we've got a gift that we want to give you today. I don't think it's an accident that you're here. Um, I don't think it's an accident that any of you are here, in fact, today. If you've been coming for a few weeks, a couple, maybe a month or two, we haven't met yet. We're going to be doing Discovering Southbridge today after the service, and so I'd love to meet you. I'll be in a blue tent underneath uh, the awnings on the, way out of your, on the way back out to your car today, as long as you don't slide out one of the emergency exits. But if you've got the main doors today, um, I'll be out there. I would love to meet with you. Just say hi, answer any questions you might have about the church, maybe give you some more information about the church and help you figure out if this is the place for you. And then those of you who are regular attenders, I believe that uh, God has you here for a reason today too. We're going to talk about a topic today that impacts every one of our lives, regardless of what's happening in your life right now. It impacts your life. There's never a time when everything is okay in our lives. I was listening to a commencement speech this past week. I don't know if you've heard very many commencement speeches. Uh, They tend to have one thing in common. They're boring. I don't know if you've graduated from high school, graduated from college, but you think back, you probably don't remember the commencement speech, but I was listening to one that, it hooked me in. In fact, it was was so catchy, it actually went viral. You may have heard it. It was given by uh, a Navy SEAL, uh, William, uh, what was his name? Admiral William uh, McRaven was his name, and he was a graduate from the University of Texas. He was talking to his alma mater, University of Texas in Austin, and he was giving them 10 ways they could change the world. The slogan for uh, Texas University, UT, is that what starts here changes the world. I thought it was really interesting. As he got into his speech, he started talking about if each one of you could impact 10 people, it could change the world. And I thought about that. I thought it was interesting considering our vision of 10X, of having each one of our members impact 10 people over the next 10 years for Jesus Christ. How it could have an impact around the world. And so he got the idea, even though he wasn't a, a believer. And he was talking about the, to these young people about changing the world, having an impact. And he gave them 10 lessons that he learned in his SEAL training that he thought would transcend military and impact each one of our lives. He talked about SEAL training and talked about how it was basically all the trials and all the troubles, all the stresses and difficulties of life crammed into six months. He said right after he graduated from UT, he went out to California and he talked about what the SEAL training was like, long runs in the sand, swimming in the middle of the night in the ocean, constantly being wet and dirty and nasty and having to deal with it. And he talked about all the different trials they went through, warriors that was trained, professional warriors, trying to break them down mentally, break them down physically and find out who can't make it, who's not going to be a SEAL. They're not strong enough physically, they're not strong enough mentally to do it. And they go through this six-month training that really weeds everybody out that can't handle it. And he talked about 10 lessons from the different things that they learned throughout that training. The one that really went viral that people got attached to was the first point that he made in his speech. He said, if you want to change the world, make your bed. And he talked about how every day they had to make their bed. It was the first thing they did. And he talked about doing the small things in life. But that wasn't the one that grabbed me. The one that grabbed me was about the fourth principle that he gave. And the fourth principle had to do with uniform inspections. And he talked about how a couple times a week, they would randomly call them out for uniform inspections. And every SEAL would have to have their hat perfectly pressed and their uniform starched. 
And they, they couldn't have like a smudge on their belt buckle. There could be nothing wrong with their uniform. And so they worked really hard to get this to perfection. But the instructors always found one student who didn't do it. And all of them, they could find something wrong. But they always picked one who didn't do it. And then what they would do is they'd send that soldier down to the surf zone, have them get in the water so they'd be wet from head to toe with their uniform on, and then have them get out of the water and roll around in the sand. It was an exercise they called sugar cookie. You can probably figure out why. And then they made them wear that uniform for the rest of the day, wet, with sand on it. And, and the point of the exercise, he said, was so that they would get used to dealing with difficult circumstances, that everything's never going to be okay. There's never going to be a time where every detail is perfect. It was showing them that their uniforms couldn't be perfect, and they needed to be able to deal with stressful situations, difficult situations, things when they're all not perfect. He said the guys who couldn't understand the point of the lesson didn't make it as seals. If you think about it, that's a lot how life is like. There's never a time when everything's okay. There are times when we focus on the good, and there's times when we focus on the bad, but if you think about life, just think about how it works. There's always something good you can think about. There's always something bad that's going on as well. And sometimes there's multiple good things, and so you focus here. Sometimes there's one really bad thing, so you focus here. But they tend to happen simultaneously, and they kind of run in parallel, and they're always happening, which means there's never a time when everything's okay. But what it means for us as believers in Jesus Christ is this. God's not waiting for everything to be okay in your life before he wants to use you. That God ministers to us in our mess. He ministers through our mess to other people when things aren't all okay. The problem is we tend to think about life like this. At least if you're anything like me, this is, this is how I oftentimes think about life. That the good days are right around the corner. That those days when God's going to show up in our lives, he's going to do the thing that we're hoping he's going to do. The time he's going to show off in our lives, he's going to do something that's amazing to impact other people. It's just around the corner. Once I get past this stage, once I get done with this, once I pass this exam, once I get done with this place, once I get to this level in my organization, once this relationship straightens out here, and the problem is we end up living our lives like NASCAR drivers. We're just constantly waiting to get around the corner. It's constantly about to happen. And you know what ends up happening? We never arrive. What God wants to do is he wants to minister in your mess. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There's never a time when everything's okay. So today we're talking about ministry in the mess. And how God wants to work through that. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 28. So we're at the last chapter of the book of Acts. We've been doing this for a year and a half. We're about to accomplish something here and do the, the whole book we've been going through. And we're going to look at the first 10 verses today, Acts chapter 28. And what's been happening here, in case you're new with us today, is that the past three weeks have almost been like a mini-series. You know, we've been doing the big series called Movement, how God works through the church in the book of Acts. But then the last three weeks, we've really been talking about trials and difficulties and tragedies. And we're going to continue that this week as we see another one. What happened two weeks ago is we talked about dealing with disaster. As Paul, he had been waiting to go to Rome. He finally gets on a boat to go to Rome, and then there's a storm. The storm lasts for two weeks. That's the first half of chapter 27. And then the second half of chapter 27, they shipwreck. But God keeps his promises, what we saw last week, that God always keeps his word, exactly like he says he's going to do. And all of the men, the soldiers, the prisoners, the sailors, they all make it to shore without a hair on their head being damaged. Some of them had to swim. Some of them floated on debris, but God keeps his promises. He delivers them there. And then we get to chapter 28. More bad stuff happens. <laughs> Paul finally reaches his around the corner. You know, if I could just get through this storm. And then there's more stuff. Look at it. Acts chapter 28. We'll read the first four verses together right now. It says, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Malta means refuge, a place of refuge, but it was anything but that. It says, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. They landed probably in the month of November. It's about 50 degrees outside. 
And Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself to his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. (laughs) Try and imagine being Paul in this situation. You are falsely accused way back in Acts chapter 21 of a crime you didn't commit, trying to defile the temple, bringing Gentiles into a Jewish area. He didn't do that. So they trumped up charges against him. He gets imprisoned. In Acts chapter 23, Jesus himself visits Paul and tells him, verse 11, have courage, take heart, because you're going to Rome. So you're going to make it through this. He's ready to go to Rome. This guy's planting churches all over the world. He wants to do what God wants him to do. But then God has him in a holding pattern as he sits in that prison cell for two years. You ever wanted to do what God wants you to do? Do you get stuck in this holding pattern? And that too can be part of God's plan. And some of you know exactly what that's like because you're in it. And Paul's sitting in this prison cell for two years. He finally gets out of the prison cell. He gets on a boat. He's headed towards Rome. And then there's a storm. Are you kidding me? The storm's so bad that it rains for 14 days straight. They can't see the stars. They can't see the sun. They don't know where they're at. They don't know when it's day. They don't know when it's night. And then the last part, then they end up shipwrecking. They run aground. The boat breaks to pieces. They float to shore. They swim to shore. But they're finally ashore. People come out, and they're kind to them. It's cold outside, so they start gathering sticks. They're going to have a fire. And then he gets bit by a snake. (laughs) Really? Paul's life is like a country song. You know, it's like his wife leaves and then the truck breaks down and now his dog dies. You know, he just wants to, if I could just get my dog back. It's kind of how the country songs go. It's, it's not so much that one thing happened. It's not the storm. It's not the shipwreck. It's the combination of all these things happening. It's like one thing right after another. Have you ever had that? It's not just that this wouldn't be so bad all by itself, but then there's this and there's this and there's this. And, you know, you lose your job and you get home and there's a tax bill you didn't expect to be there. And then your car breaks down, and then something's wrong with somebody you love. And it's the, man, if it was just this one, or it's just that one, or it's just that one, it wouldn't be great. And even though there's good things, we'd still be focused on the bad stuff, but it's the combination of all this stuff. And we see that throughout the Bible. You go to the book of Job. Have you read the book of Job? I want to read to you some from the book of Job this morning. Job chapter 1 says this, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He's the most godly man of his time. He feared God. He shunned evil. He had a big family. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he had a lot of stuff. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. Had a large number of employees, servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And so he was really successful. He had a big family and a lot of wealth. That's what this is saying. You jump down in chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. It says, one day, this all happened in one day. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting, they were enjoying their wealth, and they were drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. I'm sure some of those guys were your friends, Job. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, and we underline that up on the screen because it's repeated, So you get the idea how it's one thing after another thing. While he was still speaking, another messenger came, and the fire of God said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. So not only the oxen and the donkeys and those servants, but these sheep, these servants, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, gets repeated all through the chapter. Another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, swept down on your camels, carried them off. They put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, Yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters 
So wait a minute. Camels, sheep, oxen, donkeys, even some of your friends. But now we're talking about your kids. Not just one, all ten of them. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind. Now wait a minute, it's not the bad guys this time. God, you're the one that controls the wind. A mighty wind came and swept from the desert and it struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. All in one day. One thing after another thing. And so he knew that pain. And why is it that so many people go to the book of Job for comfort? Why is it that so many people have turned throughout the years? Millions of people have gone to the book of Job. If you've never read it, it's a great source of dealing with comfort or dealing with pain and suffering in times when you need comfort. People don't turn to that book because Job was successful, but he was the most successful man of his time. People don't turn to that book because they want to know how to be the most righteous person of their day. But Job was that. I would bet you that if that's all the book was about, it'd have millions less readers. The reason why Job is so effective in speaking into our lives is because of the pain that he went through. Because we've been through pain, all of us, at different levels. Maybe you haven't lost 10 kids in one day. I hope that's not your story. But you know pain. And, and there's good and there's bad. And they happen simultaneously. But what happens is that that Job's pain becomes his platform to speak into our lives. And that's what God does with our pain. See, our pain becomes his platform for us to impact other people. It's his platform for him to speak into our lives, but it's also his platform for us to impact other people. It's the pain, it's the mess. He ministers to us in the mess, and he ministers through our mess to other people. Because that pain becomes a platform for him to speak to us and to speak to others. What gets me about Job is the next verse. I haven't read to you yet. In Job chapter 1 and verse 20, it says this. At this, Job got up. He tore his robe after he gets all this news in one day. He shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground. Of course he would. In worship. (laughs) Worship? In one day, you just lost everything. Job, this is when you shake your fist at God. This is when you tell God how he doesn't have the plan right. This is when you turn your back on God because he turned his back on you, didn't he, Job? But he worships. And it's in that moment of pain that becomes a platform for him to speak into our lives and the lives of millions of other people that have turned to his life during this time. And the same happens with Paul in our passage. It's in his pain that then becomes a platform for him to impact the people in Malta. It's through what God does in his life that God meets with him and ministers to him when he's on what appears to be a detour. He's on his way to Rome. He ends up in Malta. That's not an accident. That's not a mistake. It's part of God's plan. And we see this principle in lots of people through the Bible. Just go through the main characters of the Bible and start looking at their lives. What is it about Moses? Is he so intimate with God? Or do we identify with Moses because he doesn't know how to speak? Because he's a murderer. He's got a story. Because he's been adopted. Because he was given up by his family and brought into another family. Then he has to leave that family and leave riches and leave wealth. And it's the pain that we see. Abraham, it's his infertility that so many people that have struggled with infertility identify with and the struggles that he has and the deception. And he's trying to help God get his way, right? And it's because of the pain in his life. We see infertility throughout the Bible. We see famine. If you know what it is to go without, you identify with famine, you've got a glimpse. You've got maybe at a different level, but you, you've got an idea. It's the pain that becomes a platform. Joseph. People say stuff about him that's not true, and he has to live with that because no one believes him. 
and he's abused. Unfortunately, statistics will tell us that people in the church, about 20% have been abused. That's probably a very low number, because think of how many people don't report abuse. So it's in Joseph's pain that becomes a platform to speak into our lives. And even with Jesus, it's when he's being tempted in every way like we're tempted that we realize, wait, he, he understands, he gets it, he knows my struggles. It's when he's experiencing in our greatest trouble, our greatest problem is not a circumstance we experience here on earth, it's that we're rebelling against God. And so his wrath is coming on us in our greatest trouble. It's through him being flogged and beaten and crucified on a cross, it's through his pain that he takes upon our sins. And so it's his pain that becomes a platform to speak right into our lives. And here we see with Paul in our passage of scripture, you go back to verse 1, and he gets to that place where I had to feel like him. Just once we get to land, once we get, to sh- once we get around the corner, once we get to the next stage of life, to that next place, then everything's going to be fine. And he gets there. It's about 50 degrees outside. It's November. It's raining. And so he's wet and cold. They do, they're going to build a fire. They show him unusual kindness. When I read that word, unusual kindness, I thought, what is unusual kindness? It's like some creepy person. I'm going to be kind. You know, what, what in the world is that? I think the unusual kindness is 276 men just crashed on the shore of your island. It's a small island. It's only about 18 miles long, 8 miles wide, Malta is. And instead of hiding, to try and hide from these prisoners and these soldiers, instead of coming out and victimizing these guys who are in a vulnerable situation, instead they come out and they try to help. And so they come out and they build a fire. And Paul, probably with a lot of other people, starts picking up sticks to put into the fire. And apparently... He picked up a snake that looked like a stick. Now, I don't know how that happens. I don't like snakes. I don't want anything to do with snakes. But I read this week that a lot of them would have been stiff and lethargic at this time of year on this island. So maybe he picked one up. Maybe he didn't pick it up. Maybe it was already in the fire. But he throws these sticks on the fire, and then the snake comes out, lands on his hand. <laughs> I'm not interested in that. I mean, who wants that? I mean, he's already been through the storm. He's already been through the shipwreck. He's already sat in prison for a couple years. And now this is happening? Why is this happening? And we see in Paul's life, he goes through a lot of bad stuff. Been flogged, been stoned, has been falsely accused of things, been falsely imprisoned before, all because of his stand for Christ. We've even seen difficulty in his life, you could argue, because of his resistance to Christ when he was blinded on the Damascus Road. But why does this happen? You know, this one's different. This one's interesting. Because this is just life happening. It's part of living in this broken place. Luke goes out of his way back in chapter 27 around verse 4 to tell us the reason why this happened is because they went into a storm at the wrong time of year. It wasn't God's divine punishment. It wasn't God's rebuke of Paul for doing something wrong. He wasn't just trying to discipline these sailors. There was nothing moral taking place here. It just happened because this world's broken. It's messed up. Now, all of it goes back to sin in Genesis chapter 3. We read about that in Romans. The reason why there's pain and difficulties is because of sin in this world. But it doesn't mean because of a specific sin that you've done or that I've done. And so here we see Paul facing the kind of stuff that we face. Most of the difficulty in our lives isn't because of our stand for Christ, if we're honest. Most of the difficulty in our lives isn't because of our being disciplined by God. If if we knew all the details, it's just this place is screwed up. There's death. There's people with disabilities. There's uh, rape. There's bankruptcy. There's divorce. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. And here was a storm. And then a snake. If I'm Paul, I'm thinking, I don't have time for this. I've been through a storm. I've been through the shipwreck. I don't, I don't want to mess around with this. This is ridiculous that I, I'm dealing with a snake now. And those of you who know me, you know I don't like snakes. If you were here around Easter, 
I, I mentioned in the message that I was preaching on Easter Sunday how I had come face-to-face with a snake out in our front yard, and it was a behemoth uh, from my recollection, but I put a picture online so you can check it out, but it was a big snake. And I saw it, and my kids had been out there playing by where the snake was at, and so I went and got my snake-fighting tools, and, and I was going to kill this thing, a baseball bat and a shovel, and uh, came out there, and when I saw the snake, all I saw was the tail, and so I got real close, and I, I kind of prodded the snake to, to move it a little bit. And then it climbed up into a tree. I didn't know that they could climb up. And so it starts doing that. I start messing with the thing to try and get it into a place where I can kill it. Eventually, long story short, I bashed the thing's head with a shovel. Killed the thing. It was awesome. Then last week I was listening to my good friend, Pastor Jason, preach uh, the message online. They're all online if you want to ever watch one of the Southbridge sermons. I wasn't able to be here last week. And so I'm listening. And he's got a book and he mentioned in his message, and, I, and as soon as I heard him talk about it, I, I went over to his office to grab it. It's called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. And he even alluded to in his message that there's a, a chapter on snakes. And it talks about how to avoid an attack. And I said, can I see that book? Friend, who didn't give it to me before, says, uh, do not try to get close. That's the first thing it tells us. Do not try to get close. Do not prod the snake. Do not try to make it move or try to kill it. <laughs> I broke every rule. Right at the beginning. And I read the book and thought, yeah, thanks for loving me. I really appreciate you telling me about that ahead of time. I could be dead. But I ended up killing the snake. And then I posted a picture on Facebook and found out we have a bunch of snake apologists in our church. People started telling me, that's a good snake. Don't kill that kind of snake. That snake there's no such thing as a good snake. Okay, Let me be clear about that. Paul didn't have Facebook. Paul didn't have a survival guide. So look what Paul does. <laughs> look back at the passage. Look what Paul does in uh, verse 5. Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. And so Paul has the snake hanging by the fangs on his hand, and he shakes it off into the fire. Paul's a bad dude. And that'd be fun to preach about, how Paul's a bad dude, and all the bad stuff he goes through. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, talk about that stuff. That's not why he does this, though. And it's not because he's been through a shipwreck. It's not because he's been through floggings. It's not because he's been through stonings. It's not just that he says, I don't have time for this. Why is Paul able to just shake the snake off into the fire? It's because he knows that God has a plan for his life. It doesn't matter how messy it gets. God's going to fulfill his plan. He knows the plan specifically, unlike some of us, because he, he knows he can go back to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus visited him and said, you're going to Rome, Paul restates it in chapter 27, verse 24. You're going to go to Rome. And he says, I believe that God's going to do exactly what God says he's going to do. And so when he gets bit by a snake, I don't know exactly what Paul thought, but he probably thought, I'm not going to die because I'm not in Rome yet. Or if I do die, God will raise me up from the dead. Because Paul knew that until God was done with him, he was invincible. You know what? That's true for you too. I think it's John Calvin, the first one that said it, that you are invincible until God's done with you. And God's going to work through you, whether or not you do it in resistance, and he does it through discipline, or whether or not you do it in obedience, you get to be a part of what he's doing. God will fulfill his plan. Because what we see through all of these texts, all the way from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 28, is that God's sovereign. And he will, it doesn't matter what the resistance is, doesn't matter if it's sin, doesn't matter if it's Satan, doesn't matter if it's internal, doesn't matter if it's external, doesn't matter if it's persecution, doesn't matter if it's a storm. That God fulfills his plan and he will work and he will receive glory. But do you believe him? Do you trust him? Do you realize that like he does here with Paul, he's going to meet you in your mess? And I don't know what you're going through. 
I don't know what the exact circumstances are, but I know there's always good, there's always bad. And they're happening simultaneously. And, and you're never fully ready. You've never had enough training. You've never gotten to the right stage of life. Everything's never perfect. There's always, if you're going to go back to the speech that the Navy SEAL gave, there's always a smudge on your belt buckle. There's always some lint on the uniform. There's always something wrong. And many of us feel like we're living like sugar cookie. Like it's just a mess. But God ministers in the mess. He ministers to us, and he wants to minister through us. You see what the people say here. Paul just shakes it off. He's showing his faith in God. But you go back up to verse 4. It says, when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, which they thought was divine judgment, he got away from God. Justice has not allowed him to live. And notice that that word justice is capitalized. It's being personified here. Justice was a goddess that they believed in, a goddess that was a daughter of Zeus that executed fate. And what they believe here, what the pagans believe that see this happening, is the same thing that any superstition, doesn't matter what title you put on it, all the superstitious religions believe the same thing. Bad stuff happens to bad people. Paul did something wrong, he's being judged for it. Karma. Goes wrong, you don't believe in karma, do you? Please don't answer. Don't be discouraged. It's bad thinking. It's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. We know that the wicked prosper. The Bible even says that. But there's a day of judgment. But here on earth, that's not how it always works. And so let me say this. If you're a Southbridge member specifically, let me speak into your life this way. Don't say stuff when you don't know what you're talking about. Because what you oftentimes do is like Job's friends who come in and they say some true-ish kind of things. They make the suffering worse. Remember one time I was sitting with a mentor of mine in a hospital waiting room with another couple, and he was sharing the gospel with this couple. And their loved one was being operated on, and they were talking about Jesus. They were talking about how Jesus fixed the greatest problem. Their greatest problem was they turned their back on God. They had sinned, and we all do that. And he said that Jesus did the greatest example of love as he gave his own life. He died on the cross, and they're talking about this. They're going back and forth, and then the husband says, I could never believe in a God who would kill my child to make me pay for my sins somebody says something like that and you're sharing the gospel with them, that's one of those times where you stop and you listen. Sometimes people say stuff because they don't want to deal with Jesus dying for them. You know, what about the person in Africa? Well, after you trust Jesus, you can go tell them the gospel. So you just get over that one real quick. But sometimes people say stuff that's real. This guy said this, and my mentor said, uh, Tim, tell me what you're talking about. And he talked about how when he was dating his wife, before they got married, they got pregnant, and their baby died. And they went to their priest, and the priest told them, the reason why your baby died is because you uh, got pregnant out of wedlock. You got pregnant in a sinful relationship, and so therefore God's punishing you by your baby dying. Uh, let me tell you this. Uh, is it sinful to have sex outside of marriage? Yes. The Bible clearly states that. Did the baby die? Yes. Does the priest know that's why the baby died? No. We don't have a verse on that. We don't have some consistent way that we see this happening. You don't, you don't know. If you don't know, you know what he's telling him? Karma. Well, you did something bad, so bad things happened. And we don't know the ways of the Lord that way. Unless we have a verse, unless we have a passage, unless we know it's clear, we don't know. And now this guy's saying he won't trust Christ because he believes a messed up view of God. And his pain, his suffering was made worse. Because someone's saying things like what these pagans believed here. Justice is taking place now. You don't know. Be quiet. 
because we don't know what's happening. We can know certain things are happening, no matter what the circumstance. We can know that God's going to be glorified. We can know that God's still sovereign. We can know that it wasn't that God wasn't able to stop a terrorist attack on buildings. It wasn't that God wasn't able to stop abuse in Joseph's life or in yours. It wasn't that God wasn't able to stop these difficult things. His sovereignty remains true. Sometimes we try to explain it away because we feel like, well, how did he let this happen? Why wouldn't he stop these things? Well, we know that he's still at work. We see it in passages of Scripture like John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, the disciples are walking along with Jesus. They walk by a guy who's been born blind. And the disciples say, who sinned, this guy or his parents? <laughs> I heard one pastor say, talk about the most insensitive statement ever. In front of this guy? Was, is, this, is his disability his fault? Now, I'm sure the blind guy had probably heard lots of stupid statements throughout his life. Doesn't mean it didn't hurt. It's probably Peter, right? I'm just going to pin it on somebody. The Gospels don't say it. It says, the disciples said. I don't think all 12 of them in unison said, who sinned? This guy. One of them did, and they're covering for each other. That's what I think in John chapter 9. And Jesus answers. In John chapter 9, and verse 3, Jesus tells us, in that situation, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. So you don't know what's happening. So watch your mouth. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, which is always happening in difficult circumstances. The God's going to be glorified, and he's going to meet this guy, this blind guy in that passage in the mess. He's going to meet Paul in the midst of the mess. And I don't know what your experiences have been like, but my experiences have been in my faith journey. It's when I go through some of the worst times in life is when I experience some of the most intimacy with Jesus. Oh, I was speaking last week at another church here in town, Journey Church on Capitol Boulevard. Great church. If you aren't sure that Southbridge is your place, you should check out Journey Church. It's a great place. I'm preaching there. And in my message, I talked about some dark times I had gone through in my faith journey with Jesus. Times when I did shake my fist at God, when I was angry and was telling him he's not doing it the way that it should be done. I genuinely thought those things. I talked about how God meets me in those moments, though. After the message, I had several people come up and talk to me. I didn't have one person come and talk to me and say, you know, the best thing that's ever happened in my relationship with Jesus is there's never been a bad thing. But I had people come up to me and they talked to me about disabilities. And people come up to me and talk to me about divorce. And people come up to me and one person come up to me and talk to me about murder. And then how God meets them in that time. And some of you, God's trying to meet you in the midst of your mess. In the difficulty in the difficult situation where it seems like, man, I wish you'd just take this away. I wish you'd just fix this. Because you know how God shows up with Paul? He delivers him. He doesn't die when he gets bit by a poisonous snake, a venomous snake. Some of your texts say, a snake who contained poison. So he delivered him. He healed him. That's what he does with the blind guy. He delivers him. He heals him in John chapter 9. But this passage doesn't talk about it. We've got to say, because I know it's going to happen for some of you, he doesn't deliver everybody. And he doesn't deliver everybody in the Bible. He shows his power sometimes in deliverance, and some of you he will deliver. Some of you he won't. Some of you, your greatest pain is that you lost a loved one. They're not coming back to this earth. Some of you, it's that your spouse left you. They're not coming back. They might be married to somebody else. Some of you, it's a disability or a sickness or some type of thing. You want healing, and you're on this side of heaven, you're not going to get healing, some of you. Some of you will. So then what? What we see is that God shows us that he still shows up, and he sustains us to be able to endure the difficult situation. It happens with Paul in multiple other places. In Philippians chapter 1, he talks about being in chains. The Philippian believers are upset that he's in jail. And then he says, no, 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 don't worry. This has served the purpose of furthering the gospel. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, a famous verse, and he has a thorn in the flesh. Here's a guy who's healed other people. And he's asking God to take away his disability, his problem. And God says, no. It's for my glory in your life, but my grace will be sufficient for you. And so that's how God meets us. He ministers to us, sometimes by deliverance, sometimes by endurance. Sometimes he takes us out of the situation, he shows off his power, he flexes his muscles. Sometimes he's going to do it by being faithful for a long period of time. He's going to allow you to remain in it. And you could question whether or not the people who remain in it are the ones that have the greater faith than the ones who are delivered. Because he allowed you to stay in it and show his ability to endure. He sustains. And not only that, he wants to minister through you to other people. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I was reading this to my daughter the other night. It says, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. That means he feels our pain. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. He'll always meet you in your troubles. He'll always be there. But why? So that, here's why, we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And so he doesn't just do it for us. He does it in our lives and ministers to us to show us who he is, but then so he can show off through us. So that we can comfort those in trouble, the comfort we ourselves have received. Verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ flow into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance. So you can endure through it. Of the same sufferings we suffer, and we share in these sufferings. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed. We're going to tell you about our hardships. We suffered at the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, more than we could handle. So that we despised even life. We wanted to die. We wanted out. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that, here's the reason, we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, so that we depend upon him, always what he's doing. Who are we depending upon? The God who raises the dead. Now, you have to be a Christian. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then don't you believe he can deliver you from your circumstances? If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then don't you believe that he can sustain you in your circumstances? And that he's doing something in them because he ministers in the mess. That's what he does here with Paul. He meets him in this time when he's, he's bit by a poisonous snake and it's got to seem like just one thing. And while he was still speaking, and while he was still speaking, it's what he does with Job. And Job turns and he worships. And God does something in those moments that then points us ultimately to Christ. And the way we respond then points others to Christ. Job worships? I heard a story of a woman this week, and I'll tell it to you in a couple seconds, but it was about a 40-year journey for her. She was sexually abused when she was young, and she's in her 50s at the point she tells the story. And she talks about how, had she not been abused, she doesn't think she could know God in certain ways that she now knows God. And she says that today, she thanks God for the abuse. That's not normal. That's like Job. Everything's been taken away in one day, and then he worships? And God, I'm going to thank you for the most painful thing that's ever happened in my life. I'm going to thank you for that. Why? It's supernatural. God met her in that mess. He wants to meet you in the mess and bring comfort, but not just so that you'll have comfort, but so that you can comfort others. 
You know what's really interesting to me about this? Verses 1 through 10. We'll go through verses 7 through 10 here in a moment. As you read all the verses, and not once do we see Paul giving a verbal witness of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a head-scratcher because we've been going through Acts for a year and a half, and you probably have seen that there's a theme. Because he's witnessing. Everybody's witnessing. Peter's witnessing. John's witnessing. Paul's witnessing. Everybody's witnessing. It all goes back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is the outline of the book. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And what we've seen is we've traveled geographically from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Acts 1.8 is where it started. You will receive power. Just believers. Okay? If you're not a believer, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, you go through something like this, you've got no hope. That's what the Bible says. Not just me trying to give you tough words. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, but in the Acts, Acts chapter 1.8, you receive power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead comes and lives within you. Power that you'll be as witnesses. So that means you're going to point people to Christ. And we've seen it verbally and verbally and verbally all throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. Now here we are, we're on our way to Rome, which have been the uttermost parts of the world for them. And he doesn't say anything. Can't ignore that. Why? Because oftentimes it's how we respond and it's our lives that validate the words that we've said or sets us up for the words that we will say. It's his life here. He shakes it off. He trusts God. And then you see what happens next. Verse 6, the same people that thought that he was a murderer and experiencing divine judgment, then call him a god, little g-god. So the people expected to see him swell up, suddenly fall dead. Verse 6, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds. And they said he was a god. Now, they're wrong again. Bad thinking, bad thinking, and totally understand. It's a mess, but there's a different platform for Paul now. Paul's got a platform because of his pain to speak into their lives. And what we end up seeing happen in the next several verses is that Paul then goes, and the very one who was healed is then used for healing in other people's lives, verses 7 through 10. Because God uses our pain. It's the very thing he does with Jesus Christ. We live in this American Western society where things are about comfort and things are about convenience and we feel like that's the blessings of God. But we read right past passages that make it very clear that it's because of suffering that we experience any kind of blessing. Hundreds of years, so about six, seven hundred years before Jesus walked the earth, Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 53, a famous verse that we don't get the impact of because of our love for comfort. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace, our healing, was upon him. And it's by his wounds we are healed. The Apostle Peter says the same thing. In 1 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament, after Jesus has died, after Jesus has risen from the dead, hundreds of years later, from the time that Isaiah the prophet had written, he says this, he himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So it's not just that our, our problems would be solved and we'd live for God. And it's by his wounds. It's his suffering by his wounds that we've been healed. Our greatest problem that we had our backs turned to God, that he came in and it's through his pain and through his suffering that we experience healing. And what God wants to do is to take your pain and use it as a platform and he's not waiting for you to get through it all. And he's not waiting for you to be delivered. He's not waiting for you to be better. He's not waiting for you to know more, to get to the next stage. In the midst of it, he wants to use you. Look what happens in the next part of this passage. It says that uh, there was an estate nearby after the fire is done. It's 276 guys here uh, that belonged to Publius. When I read that to my daughter, she laughed. Just the name Publius. Publius. The chief official of the island. He welcomed us in his home. So you get an idea what this guy's home is like. 276 people he entertains here into his home. And for three days he entertained us hospitably. 
His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. He had Malta fever, probably, which would have come from drinking some of the goat milk on the island. And dysentery, uh, unclean situation. And so he's got uh, a stomach bug. It'd be like a malaria-type disease where it would flare up and then go away and then flare up and it was flared up. And he's suffering from this. And Paul went in to see him. And after prayer, and we can just read right past that. But Luke's showing us something here. These people thought that he was a god. Gods don't pray because they want the glory for themselves. Magicians don't pray because they want the glory for themselves. Prayer was a sign of his dependence. And, and what did he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? And God allows us to go through these things so that we might depend upon him. He's showing his dependence here. Sometimes prayer is all you have. Because after prayer, Paul placed his hands on him and he healed him. And when this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and they were cured. So that means there were more people. And wasn't just one sick guy on this island? It wasn't just one person that was going through the mess? It wasn't just one person that was experiencing pain? It wasn't just one person that wanted deliverance? And so then there's a crowd of people that come because Paul heals this one guy. Because then pain becomes a platform. And then it doesn't say that there's a verbal witness here, but... Tradition tells us that this is when the first church in Malta was started. And the first pastor's name was Publius. <laughs> and so what happened here was through the response in the midst of the suffering, then people then were pointed to Christ. Because here's what happens in suffering. We didn't get to see Jesus flogged. We didn't get to see Jesus nailed to the cross. We didn't get to see him bleeding. You know what we get to see is how God's people respond when there is suffering. And in that, what happens for the person who's going through the suffering, Philippians chapter 3, is that we get to then fellowship with his suffering. We get to complete some of his suffering, Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. We get to then express to the world around us the suffering that Christ was willing to endure to deal with our greatest problems. By his wounds we are healed. And so then we experience wounds. We've then got an opportunity to then point people to Christ. Because your pain is your platform to impact other people's lives for Jesus. So what pain have you been through? Some of you don't even want to talk about it. You want anyone to know. You think you're the only one? See, what happened here on the island of Malta, that wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident that they ended up on this island. Was there a shipwreck? Yep. And we call that an accident, but it wasn't by chance. It was all part of God's plan. This wasn't Rome. This was a detour in Paul's life from his perspective. Some of you are in a detour. And God wants to use that. It's not an accident you're going through what you're going through. It's not an accident you've been through what you've been through. It's not an accident the things that you will go through in the days ahead. But how will that be a platform then for you to then point other people to Christ? Maybe you've been abused. Perhaps that's your platform. Statistics say that it's at least 20% of other people in the church. It's probably not true. It's probably much higher than that. Maybe your spouse cheated on you. You feel like you're the only one. You don't think there's other people that have been through that? Your child's rebelling against God. You've lost a child. Your child has a sickness that you think no one else can understand. Maybe that's not an accident. It's God's divine plan for a platform for you to impact other people. And then the way that he comforts you, then you'll comfort them. And, and, and that could look lots of different ways. Maybe it means smart, starting a small group in the fall here at Southbridge. So people that are going through those type of situations. And maybe it means doing something else. How does God want to use your pain? There's never going to be a time when everything's okay. He's not waiting for you to get through the mess. He wants to minister to you in the mess. He wants to minister through your mess to point people to his son, Jesus Christ. So how do you want to minister in your mess?
Father, we come before you. Humbled that as broken vessels you desire to use us. Challenged in ways that our thinking needs to change. Challenged in ways that don't make sense to us. Your ways are higher than our ways. It doesn't make sense that you'd take sin, that you'd use Satan even in the life of Job. You'd use Satan to bring yourself glory. But you are sovereign. You are in control. You're sovereign in the difficult stuff. You're sovereign in the good stuff. You're sovereign through the shipwrecks in Malta and the detours in our lives and the waiting in prison and the storms and the stake bites. And when there's just one more thing that we couldn't handle, the one more thing, and when life is more than we can endure, you are sovereign and we cast our cares upon you because you care for us. It's through your wounds we've been healed. And so we turn to you for healing. We ask for every person to hear these words to experience deliverance. But for those that you have a a bigger plan for, that they would be able to endure trusting you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.